We are studying the life of Joseph, and today we come to Genesis 43. And if you advance the slide, David, I think it's important to put Joseph in context and remember who we're talking about. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. What does that mean? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God gives some fundamental uh, promises for his whole plan of salvation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph is the 11th son, the favorite son of Jacob. And we're talking about the human line through which Jesus Christ would come thousands of years later. God has a big plan, right? And he knows exactly how it's going to work. Now, we look at the Bible and we think it's a big book, but it only has two parts. The first part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. It anticipates and and prepares and predicts the first coming of Christ. I think the major premise of the Old Testament is everybody sins and everybody dies. I know about Enoch and Elijah, but other than those two, everybody sins and everybody dies. One major promise is what the promise is. The Messiah, who's going to be a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is coming. First as a lamb, later as a lion. The New Testament is the second part of the Bible. It's written by eyewitnesses of the risen Christ in the decades right after his first coming as the Lamb. It has one major premise. What's the major premise of the uh, New Testament? Use the visual aid if you need it. Yeah, that Jesus of Nazareth is the one the Old Testament promised, and he's coming back. Okay, next slide. Yeah, so I put that arrow so we can realize we're New Testament believers reading Genesis with a New Testament lens, but these guys are living in the Old Testament era. They're in the direct line, and we see some of the intricacies that in the in the character building that God does in the folks that are going to be the founding forefathers of the nation of Israel. And maybe one more. Yeah, and if you think about this, uh, Old Testament believers are saved. We're saved just like we are, except the object of their faith is different. Salvation is by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But the folks like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were believing in the promised Savior. And then, David, I think, yeah, those of us who are living on this side, we're in uh, what 2019 now. We are putting our saving faith in the, in the uh, I should say, provided. i got to change that visual aid. That's the provided Savior. Okay, next slide. Yeah. Now, when you... When you look at the life of Joseph, it's such an amazing story, you can sometimes forget this is not just recorded in Scripture so that Rick Schonelmeyer can read an amazing story about one guy. It's teaching how God's working in that generation to eventually get Christ here, and it's also teaching, I think, a beautiful illustration of something that ought to characterize all of us, but sometimes it doesn't if we're believers in Christ. It's illustrating the redeeming power of perseverance. Perseverance is overcoming adversity tests and prosperity tests such that you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason you can think of. And you've got a limited number of uh, available options, but God knows exactly what's going on. It's trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. And the power of perseverance and forgiveness. Joseph doesn't have a a mean bone in his body. Uh, He could have had those brothers executed with cause as soon as they came the first time for food. We'll talk about the context in a minute. But he doesn't. He's not been waiting for the day to get even with them. 
He's been praying for the day to reconcile with them. The power of forgiveness, I like to say, I'm just not important enough to make a huge deal about every little thing. And really, you're not either, right? And Joseph is a guy with a great conception of the grace of God, and therefore he's able to graciously deal with his brothers. But, although he doesn't totalize whom they are based on the worst thing they probably ever did, selling him into slavery, thinking they'd work him to death in Egypt, he also is not so naive just to blanket trust them because if they hated him enough to want him dead 22 years before the events we're reading about now, maybe they killed his younger brother Benjamin too. Maybe they've whacked their father to get the inheritance. He doesn't totally trust them until he tests them. We're going to see the second of three character tests he gives them. He's praying they'll pass the character test. He's hoping, and he believes in a God who's in the people-changing business. God is more interested in our character than our circumstances, which you will not hear from Joel Olstein ever, because he either doesn't believe that, doesn't know it, or doesn't think it's important enough to stress very often, which is unfortunate. But that's what you see. We're seeing the redeeming power. And this can happen in your life, in your family, in your network, the redeeming power of God's grace when we persevere and live lives of forgiveness as we actively live out our faith, resting in and trusting in the sovereignty of God. We're going to see that uh, again today, and we've seen it throughout the story. But we come to chapter 43 today. Joseph's older brothers return for the second time to buy food during the famine in the region. Joseph's ten older brothers return to Egypt with their baby brother, Benjamin, and while there, Joseph will administer a second character test. Okay, So let's go to the next slide. Uh, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word this morning. And uh, when I say I'm happy to be here, believe me, I'm really happy to be here. Always happy to be here, but it's always great to go on a trip like we had. We had a great experience, but it's always great to get back home and be able to, to teach the word here. So... Uh, Let's pray for our teachability to God's word and also, as is our custom, let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, guys like that, gals like that, and also our, our firefighters. One of the members of the tour, Mike Wilson, is the assistant fire chief in Norman. He lives in Moore, uh, but he's the assistant fire chief in Norman, and that's a very responsible position. So, I'm gonna, I told him I'd put him in the bulletin, and I forgot to, but we got, the, we list some, some of the, uh, peace officers and firefighters and military people on the back page of the bulletin. Uh, I'm going to put him in there, and that's who that is. So um, I tell you what, uh, Ken, now that you've been reminded about your wedding anniversary, so I know Ken's happy to have been at church because he needed a reminder there. Uh, if you'd lead us in, in prayer in that direction, okay. Uh, yeah, go back. I don't want to reveal that yet. Yeah, go back one step there, David. Um our uh, our Israeli guide, uh, Tamar Rosenis, uh, she told me on the way to the airport to come back home that uh, about a week after the tour she, tour she leads, she sends an email to the group uh, and she gives an award. Actually, there's two awards. She gives the Best Traveler Award and the honorable mention for that. But because I just can't wait for people to find out about their awards. Ron, you were the honorable mention. And uh, Ken Wanzer was, according to our guide, was the best traveler. I thought he was going to be uh, Dustin, but Ken Wanzer was the best traveler. And actually, that's not true. I'm just setting that up to go to this next thing. 
Speaking about awards, uh, somebody had suggested, as we were talking about leadership, that Carol Wanzer would make a great U.S. president. And uh, I think that is true. And there are hundreds of reasons for that. But I'm not going to waste your valuable time uh, in this very strategic moment to go over all of those. But I do want to go over the top three reasons Carol Wanzer should run for president in 2024. We're going to give President Trump one more shot and uh, see if he can win the second time. But we're talking about the next election cycle after that. Here's reason number three. Uh, Ken would be her best campaigner and the best first dude in American history. I mean, if you have a male president, uh, his wife is called what? The first lady. So when you get Carol elected, she'd be the first female president. Her husband would be the first dude. So he'd, he'd really be a good first dude. Number two, I could be her presidential envoy to Israel, but only if she... Puts my office in a bunker deep under the Pentagon. <laughs> because that's a good place to be when you're interacting with the Israelis. And the number one reason she should be, uh, she should run and she'd win, of course. Uh, and this is kind of weird, but she's actually do it, she'd actually do a great job. And also, she could use the FBI, like Jim Comey, to keep track of Bambi, the aerobics instructor. <laughs> okay. Let's do what we're here for, which is a lot more important. Oh yeah, you know, let's just change it. Let's let, let, just let her run against Trump in 2020. I think she she could probably win that. Okay, let's go to the next. Yeah, okay, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, I lost my computer today. I, my power cord doesn't work sometimes, and I, I, it was working at 8:45 when I kind of ginned this up, and I thought it would be okay, but it ran out of juice, and that's I need to get another power cord. If anybody's got an extra power cord they want to sell me, I'd be glad to talk to you right after the meeting, after first hour. Uh, to get briefed on uh, Super Summer, and we're going to hustle back in here. If you went to Israel, and you can possibly stay for a second hour, stay so we can have you share a little bit about one or two things that really jumped out at you as you think about it. But anyway, let's put this in context here. We're going to be looking at chapter 43, and it's a long story, and I left you with a cliffhanger two weeks ago. But here's a, a quick summary of what we've seen. First, the story begins in chapter 37, where the 11th son who's the favorite son of Jacob, has dreams about the brothers bowing down to him and the whole family bowing down to him, and the brothers don't like the the, uh, the dreams, nor do they like Joseph and his multicolored letter jacket. So they think about killing him, but then they decide just to sell him to Egyptian slave traders, assuming he'd be worked to death in a short period of time. And then they went home with Dad with his letter jacket with blood on it and saying, Hey, Dad, you recognize this coat? And so they basically set up his death so they could wash their hands of him, and his dreams would never come true. Chapter 38 is one of those things you're not going to want to teach in kids' Sunday school, but it it talks about, in context, the contrast between Joseph's righteous character, plus R for me is righteousness, contrasted with Judah's sinful character. And boy, God's going to totally change Judah around over the next 22 years. But Judah uh, was a slimy, sinful, weird weirdo at this stage in his early development. Chapter 39, we see Joseph landing in Egypt, and he, he's a slave, but and he's sold on, on, the, on the slave market, but he's not working in a salt mine, Ed. He ends up with a cushy inside job, no heavy lifting, working for one of the most powerful people in Egypt, and everything's going great until that guy's wife tries to seduce him multiple times, and when he refuses... She accuses him of attempted sexual assault, and of course he's innocent, ends up in prison, but in a short time he ends up being the supervisor of the prison under the warden because he's such a faithful guy. 
That was chapter uh, 39, from slave to household supervisor to accused sex criminal to prison supervisor. Then the next chapter, we see new friends with big dreams come to the prison. We have the pharaoh's butler and baker in the prison, and they have dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams, and they become they, they're fulfilled literally, and the uh, butler gets returned to his position, and on his way out of the prison, Joseph says, remember me when you get your job back. You're going to go back and get your job and tell Pharaoh, I'm in here, I'm innocent, and something ought to be done about it. But guess what happens? Does the guy tell Pharaoh about it? Does he pull some strings? He totally forgets it for two years until the next chapter. Now the Pharaoh has a dream, and he's wanting interpretation, and suddenly the butler remembers, you know what? I remember a guy from prison that can interpret dreams. You know, he's a Hebrew. He worships that crazy God they think is the only God in the universe. Uh, but I bet he could help you. They pull him out of prison. He interprets the dream. And what's the dream saying? You're going to have seven years of bumper crops, followed by seven years of no crops. So you better start saving real quick. And he's so impressive in his presentation and his character The Pharaoh says, let's put that guy in charge of the whole system, of the whole program of saving the food during the seven good years and the distribution during the seven bad years. So he goes, Joseph goes from prisoner to prime minister in God's exact timing, which was about 20 years after he was sold into slavery. Uh, So, uh, you know, God's will is not just a what and a how, it's also a, a when. And there's a certain amount of waiting from our perspective. And when you do that, you don't doubt, pout, and drop out. What do you do? You keep, when you're at the end of your rope, what do you do as a Christian? You tie a knot in faith and you hold on. That's, that's just the way it works, okay? And then last, two weeks ago, last time we were here, Joseph begins to test the character of his older brothers because now we're nine years into the cycle of seven good years, seven bad years. We're in the second year of that. They've run out of food back at home where his brothers live and his dad lives, and they come to buy food in Egypt, and Joseph sees them, and they don't recognize him because it's 22 years later now, and um, he's dressed like an Egyptian. Besides, they know he's dead anyway, and he interacts with them, and he tells them, okay, we'll sell you some food, but uh, when you run out, come back and bring your younger brother. He knows uh, better than he should. He knows I've got an older father. He checks on the dad, make sure he's alive. Do you have another brother? Any other brothers? Yeah, we have a younger brother. Okay, don't come back for food. I'm not doing business with you unless you uh, bring your younger brother back. And just to make sure, make it more likely you'll come back, what does he do? He detains Simeon. He takes one of the brothers. So Joseph has Simeon in prison, not because he's mean and spiteful, because he wants to test these older brothers' characters. Right? Make sure they haven't killed Benjamin like they tried to kill him. Make sure they haven't done anything nasty to their dad. Okay? So that's our context. So in our chapter today, we're going to see Joseph's older brothers return to Egypt for more food. They bring their baby brother, and he's an an adult now, Benjamin, along. And Joseph will administer his second character test, a second of three character tests. So let's look at verses 1 through 15. But first, let's go back to the very end of the previous chapter for some context. We're going to see the ten older brothers with Judah taking the lead, convince dad, Jacob, to let them go back to Egypt for more food and to take Benjamin with them so they can ride out the famine. But let's go back to where we were prior to this, several months before this. Look at the last couple of verses, maybe verse 36. 
of chapter 42. Their brother Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. We know, all know he uh, ended up being killed by a wild animal. At least you brought that multicolor letter jacket with animal blood on it and said he had been killed by a wild animal. So he's, he's gone. And Simeon, Jacob's already written Simeon who's being held. He's, he's gone. You know, we can't depend on him being alive. The Egyptians probably have killed him too. And now you want to take Benjamin, the apple of my eye, the little, little brother, um, uh, the twelfth of all of them. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death. If it, You can put two of your grandkids to death if I don't come back with them. Uh, whether that's hyperbole or he actually thought that was something that would cause his dad to, you know, to actually vibrate or something or actually resonate with him, uh, you know, just it's absurd, it's ridiculous. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to do the best I can to bring him back. Uh Put him in my care. Put Benjamin in my care. We'll go get some more food, and I'll bring I'll bring him back if it's humanly possible. But Jacob said, "My son shall not go down with you. I'm not sending Benjamin under any circumstances." Now realize he's saying this when their donkeys are full of food. Okay, they got all this food. They just got back from Egypt. But several months later, when their bellies got kind of empty, suddenly the plan changes. But he just says categorically, and again, people can change. I've seen I've had people say all kinds of weird things to me. And I don't write them off because they can change. Sometimes they do. My son shall not go down with you. Benjamin is not going. Forget it. And Joseph said, if you don't come back with your younger brother, I'm not going to deal with you. For his brother is dead, Joseph, and he alone is left of of the two brothers that came from his favorite wife. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then it's going to kill me. Basically is what he's saying. Okay, now let's look at chapter 43. Other brothers return. Now the famine was severe in the land. So they got a lot of food there worth several months worth, but they come back and it's all gone or about gone. So it came about when they'd finished eating the, the grain, which they bought from Egypt, the first visit there, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food, but just don't take Benjamin with you is the implication. When he says a little food, they're going to bring, they're going to buy as much as they can afford, as much as they can haul back. But the point is, it's not going to be enough to write out the next five years. This is going to be just one more step in a multi-year step to try to survive this famine. Egypt's got all the food. Why does Egypt have all the food? They got a heads up and they stored it, right? They were prepared. Judah, not Reuben. You got what? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, then Judah. Judah, and uh, Reuben's already lost his credibility with, I'll kill my two grands, your two grandsons, dad, if you know, if we don't bring Benjamin back. But Judah speaks up now. He comes to the leadership saying, the man, they're talking about Joseph, who they think is just an Egyptian prime minister, just that. The man, you know, the guy we talked to who's in charge of the food program, solemnly warned us when we were there last time, the first time, you shall not see my face. We're not going to do business together unless your brother, Benjamin, is with you. Remember, Dad, you said he's not going down. We're not going down without him because it'd be worthless. It's not, not worth doing. If you send our brother with us, Dad, we will go down and buy food. But if you do not send him, if you don't give us permission to take him with us, we're not going to go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother's with you. Boom. That's just it. We're not going. It's not going to be worth it. Then Israel, that's another name for Jacob in this context, said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the guy you had another brother? <laughs> that has the ring of truth to it. I mean, that's just why people are, why did you tell him you had a little brother, you dumbos, you know? And... <laughs> They didn't volunteer that information. He's going to say, you know, 
But they said, the man questioned us before we, he'd even sell us food the first time about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Question one. Number two, do you have another brother? I mean, it never dawns on them. He may have reasons for asking those questions, right? And we know why, because he's their brother they thought they'd killed. Sold into slavery. So we answered his questions. I mean, look, what else could we do? Could we possibly know he'd say, okay, bring your brother the next time. We're not going to do business unless you bring Benjamin. He didn't mention the guy's name, of course. And he's talking with them through translators, so they don't recognize him. They don't have any suspicion he's Joseph. Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with us. And he's not a lad anymore, but he's still the youngest. You know, you always talk, uh, uh, he's, they call him, uh, they call him Benny. Okay, even though he's like in his 20s now, they call him Benny. Send the lad with us and we will arise and go that we may live. We're going to starve to death here unless we get some more food and not die. Uh, as we as well as you and your and our little ones, your grandkids are all going to die of starvation. I therefore will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. That sounds more like it. Uh, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, that is Benjamin, uh, then let me bear the blame before you forever. I'm going to take this seriously. I'm not going to, everything I can do, humanly speaking, we're going to do, it's like me being the tour leader. I, I promised Janice, who was kind of freaking out right before the trip, I will do my best to bring her back alive, you know. Now her luggage didn't get back, but now her luggage got back, but some people are still waiting for luggage. I think Anthony's still waiting for luggage. Um, now verse 10, I love verse 10. File this under, I hate to tell you this, Dad, but, okay, for, and, and Judah says, hey, look, Dad, if we hadn't have been w- sitting around waiting for you to change your mind, we could have re- we could have been down and back twice already. You know, we wouldn't be looking at the last couple of days of food here. Uh, let's look at the family diagram, David, which I think is going to be next there. Uh, just go through that. Go through that. Uh, go through that. Okay, here's a map. Uh, that's uh, there in Hebron right now in the land of Canaan. That is the brothers and Jacob and the family. And they're going to go to Egypt. Uh, so it's a little bit of a trip, several days for sure, maybe almost a week, depending on how they went. And let's go to the next uh, slide. Okay, uh, listen, when you look at narrative literature and scripture, a lot of it is descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? All right, how many wives or concubines did Jacob have? That'd be four, okay? Is that a good idea? Is that God's will? No, it's describing the deal. It's not prescribing it, right? And it turns out that his uh, his favorite wife, from if you have four of them, you're going to have a favorite. And that's not good for anybody, you know? Uh, when you analyze all these patriarchs that had multiple wives, it was miserable. It was a bad deal. But, uh, yeah, Rachel was the mother of, next slide, because it's going to circle it, of Joseph. Notice how Joseph's got his multicolored wonder suit on there, and Benjamin. So that's, we're, we're arguing about whether Benjamin can go, and in fact, they're going to let him go. Then, verse 11, the father, Israel said to them, if it must be so, if that's the only way you're going to go, and, and Joseph and Egypt made sure that's the only way it's going to work. Then do this. Take a gift. Take a special gift. And these are luxury items they're probably almost out of. This is a big gift because this is a big gift. This is a big ask because there's probably not much luxury items. But notice it says, he says, take a little bit of this because that's probably all they've got less. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry it down to the man, 
Joseph as a present. Take a little. We don't have much, and this may be the last they've got. A little balm, little honey, aromatic gum. That's the they didn't have juicy fruit back then. Juicy fruit gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. And take twice the money in your hand. Uh, if you remember last time when they paid for the food the first time, as they go back home when they get to the first rest stop overnight, they look in their saddlebags and there's the purchase price with their very coins in their bags. And they're going, oh my goodness. We know we didn't do this, but we also know, know it looks like we stole our money back. We, we bought the food and then we stole our money back. So in the back of their mind, they're not crazy about going back either because they're thinking we may be framed for this. But he's saying take twice the money um, as the asking price and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the sacks. Okay, you owe them what you got back, and let's pay double. We want to show them we're here with goodwill. This is a sign of good faith plus the gifts. Um, he says, perhaps it was a mistake. <laughs> perhaps they mistakenly put the, the money back in your sacks. Uh, take your brother also. Which brother are we talking about? Look at the circle. Benjamin. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, the The night before we left to come back home, was a, uh, a national holiday that remembers the second uh, Jewish revolt in 132 through 135 A.D. called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And they built bonfires all over the, the land of Israel. In fact, a few got out of hand, if you notice in the news, if you went to the J-Post, uh, that caused some problems. But a lot of us noticed they were really, and so our guide had warned us this last night, they're gonna, if you look at your, your window, your hotel, you're going to see fires burning, but that's not necessarily a problem. It's the way they celebrate that holiday. But several of us noticed they were really celebrating just more than they usually do. And I explained, actually Dale explained, the reason they were celebrating so much wasn't just because of the Bar Kokhba holiday, but because they knew we were leaving to go to America. So so they were really celebrating the fact we were leaving the country. But I kind of thought about that there. So it says, take your brother also, arise and go to the man and may God Almighty uh, grant you compassion in the sight of the man. Finally, we get a direct reference to God among the patriarchs here. Uh, we're going to put you in God's hand. We're going to trust in his providence, and maybe this will all work out. So that hopefully he will release uh, to you your other brother. That's kind of impersonal. You know, if if Jamie was being held hostage somewhere or Jonathan, uh, I would say, okay, Jamie, go back and buy the food, and maybe your, maybe your brother is still alive. I would have said maybe Jonathan... My, who, who was always my favorite, Jamie, by the way, to say on that. No, I don't, I think I like them both the same. Uh, may God Almighty grant you compassion so that he will release to you your other brother, Benjamin, you know, we all know Joseph's dead, but he's talking about Simeon and Benjamin, that he'll actually be able to go down there and come back. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. He's, you know, that may be, uh, uh, sarcastically said, but I think maybe he's saying, hey, it's in God's hands. We're going to have to trust him with this. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt there. I could be wrong. We can ask him in heaven what his intent was. So the men took the present, that is, the, the, you know, the aromatic gum and all that good stuff, and they took the, double the money in their hand, and they're also going to pay the purchase price that ended up in their saddlebags, and they also took Benjamin. Then they arose, went down to Egypt, and stood before Joseph. Um, go to the next slide there, David. Let's talk about God Almighty and go to the next slide too. You know, we talk about the major attributes of God. God is true, not truthful. He's real and he's the cause of everything that's real. Okay, that's what I mean by true. God is true 
He's triune, one God in three persons. He's transcendent. What does that mean? He's outside of time space. He's bigger than time space, all right? He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's just, righteous, sovereign, love, immutable, veracity, and eternal. I've got the omni-attribute circle. What does omni mean? It's not just in a place in Oklahoma City. It's all-complete kind of thing. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnipresent means everywhere present in the time-space universe. What does omnipotent mean? All-powerful. You don't want to say God can do anything because God can't do anything. He can't lie, can't die, can't stop being God. It means there's no finite limit on his power. Next slide. When you look at the key words for God in the Old Testament, you have Yahweh, which is the personal covenantal salvation name for God, translated with all caps in English. You've got the word Adonai, which means Lord. Uh, you got the word Elohim. It's Elohim, notice E-L is the first two letters there. And so when you've got a, a city called Beth-El, Beth means house, El is shortened for God, means house of God. In this title for God, though, El Shaddai, which is all God Almighty, that's a prefix. El is a prefix for God, God Almighty. And notice, that's the title that Jacob uses here. He's resting in the omnipotence of God, in his providence, to work out his will here. And he's hoping and trusting that ben, that includes Benjamin coming back alive. Now, notice, if you look at the last verse there, so the men took this present, they took double the money in their hand, plus, as we know, the purchase price that was returned to them. They're going to make it all clear. Uh, and they took Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Boom, just like that. That was a multi-day trip, Jeff. Wouldn't you like to know the details? You can ask him in heaven. But Moses here doesn't think you need to know the details. That's called literary compression. Okay? The Bible doesn't tell you everything. It's not also saying it took one second for them to get there. It took multiple days, maybe almost a week. You know, the Gospel of John says many other things Jesus also did which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing him, life in his name. It's called literary compression. I'm not telling you everything I know, everything I could tell you. I'm telling you what you need to know, Dennis. So uh, I think that's important to remember in Scripture. Okay? So that's the first part of the story. They uh, return to Egypt, and now, verses 16 through 30. Next slide. That's middle section there. The ten older brothers fearing the worst, because they may they may be going back to a frame job here because they, their money ended up in their saddlebags, are in fact received graciously by the prime minister of Egypt, whom they still don't recognize as their long-lost brother they tried to kill when they sold him into slavery, better known as the dreamer. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin from a distance, they're not even seeing him yet apparently, but he's seeing them come to back to the exchange where they get their food, Months after the first trip, he sees them and counts, counts the heads probably as a distance. And he realizes Benjamin's in that pack there. So Benjamin with them from a distance. He said to his house steward, bring them in into the house, my house. We're not going to do business here in public like we did the first time. I'm going to take them to my house, my palatial mansion outside of town. And slay an animal. That's good. Fresh meat. Okay. Probably ribeyes. It's my fave. And make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon, like real quick. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Verse 18. Now, the men are afraid. They're going to take us away from this public situation where it might be a little bit more difficult for them to torture and kill us, even though they could do it. He could arrest them with cause and have them executed that afternoon by just snapping his finger. But he's not doing that because he's very forgiving, uh, amazingly forgiving. Wow. 
But God's kind of amazing and forgiving with us, isn't he? So that kind of gives a little wiggle room to maybe do that some of the time. Um, the men were afraid because they were being brought to Joseph's house out of the public square, secluded in an area where only the rich VIPs live. And they said, it's because of the money that we return in our sacks. He thinks we stole it, and he's going to let us have it now for sure. The first time that we're being brought in, and under the radar, away from the public, from the crowds, you know, at the mall there, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. I mean, they're not just going to put us in a slavery, they're going to steal our donkeys. Now, if you've had a donkey, uh, you know you've become very attached to them. So they're very concerned about their donkeys when you read this, which again, this ring of truth, right? So they came near Joseph's house steward, they're on their way, and they know they're going away from town, and they're going to say, hey, listen, you know that money that they, that we paid you the first time? When we went back home, you know, the first time we stopped, we found it in our sacks, but we didn't do it. We don't. We didn't do that to you. You know, they're trying to get get out of it here. They're afraid they're going to go to, uh, to slavery because of this thing. So they came near Joseph's house steward, spoke to him at the entrance of the house, and said, oh, my Lord, that's Adonai there. And he's not God, but Adonai can just mean anybody with authority. In context, we're talking about God as different kind of authority, transcendent authority. Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. Remember that several months ago? And it came about that when we came to the lodging place the first night when we stopped to water our, our animals and get some sleep, that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's purchase price for the food we bought was in the mouth of the sack, you know, our, you know, our money in full. But we didn't steal that, and we don't, we don't know how it got there. So we brought it back in our hand. We're going to give it back to you. We want it to be, you know, fair and square. We've also brought down other money in our hand. In fact, twice what the, the going rate is to buy food. And we do not know who put our money in our sacks. Now, are they speaking the truth there? Yeah, that, that's, that's what happened. And sometimes you have to explain things, right? So he said, be at ease. And that's one word in the, in the Hebrew. Guess what it is, Carol? Shalom. It says shalom. Just chill out, baby. You know, uh, that's what he's saying. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has given you treasure in your sacks. How in the heck does this Egyptian uh, bureaucrat know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He works with Joseph, man. Joseph's living the faith. Joseph's told him about it. I don't know if this guy believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he knows about him, right? And, you know, somebody said, if you are arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? They would have been in Joseph's case. Shalom. Don't freak out. You're God and the God of your father. Now, is he saying that Joseph said that Yahweh just materialized the money in their sack? No. He explained, you know, I feel like, uh, I'm not sure how much about his family ties he told the guy at that point, but he said, hey, I want you to put that money back in their sacks. I want to make sure their family's being got plenty of wherewithal, not just food, but financial. I'm concerned about that. And I'm just doing this because I'm a believer in the real God kind of thing. And so God sometimes uses us as his hands and his feet. God doesn't need Brad McCoy. God and Tanglewood Bible Fellowship will do fine without Brad McCoy. I promise you. However, God does give us the chance as regenerate believers to score some points for the team. And he expects us to. And it, even though he's sovereign, it involves planning, thinking, perseverance, involves a lot of human initiative also, empowered by the Spirit. And that's what's happening here. And this 
Egyptian bureaucrat knows enough from Joseph's verbal and life testimony to be able to say, hey, this is part of God's plan. This is way, this was God in this. We realize that you're not guilty, that you didn't steal anything here. He said, I had your money and my boss, read between the lines, and my boss told me to put it in the sack because he's concerned about your family, right? Then he brought Simeon out to them. Who's Simeon? He's the brother they've detained, right, in Egypt. Now, they're looking at this, and I'm trying to put myself in their sandals. They're thinking, this could be really good, because they assume maybe they tortured him to death or something. That's a possibility. They don't know. Maybe he's in the salt mine. But he looks like he's in good shape, been well fed. This could be really good or really bad. They want to kill us all together, or they want to sell us all into slavery together kind of thing. So, But I think they're starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not just an onrushing train, right? Verse 24. Then the men brought, then the man, the Egyptian bureaucrat, the guy who works for Joseph, brought the men, the brothers, including now Simeon with them, into Joseph's house. And that's a bad translation. This is a mansion. Okay? This would have been a really nice house. And we get a feel for the kind of mosaic floors and stuff and the, and the niceties, uh, back in, based on what we just saw in Israel. And this would have been, 19th century BC, but still they would have had the best of everything, state of the art. So they brought him into Joseph's house, um, and gave them water. That's good. And they washed their feet. That's really good. I think they're starting to say, Hey, this is going to be a good day, right? And gave their donkeys fodder. And they're really, and that was really good. That's just icing on the cake. They're actually taking care of our donkeys. You know, we don't have enough food to, to eat our, ourselves and they're going to take care of the donkeys. So they prepared the present, that is the boys, the brothers, prepared that present with the, the aromatic gum and the myrrh and that stuff for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard they were going to eat a meal there. And I think the smiles are starting to happen among the brothers going, wow, we haven't had a good meal in a while. We've been on short rations for a while. We're going to get fresh meat. We got water. Our donkeys are being taken care of. Our pets' heads are falling off. Remember that famous quote? Um, I got a confession to make. I watched Dumb and Dumber on the airplane. I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. That's 90 minutes of my life I will never get back. But I was on the airplane anyway. Uh, through many tribulations we entered the kingdom of God. We're fl- Carol, tell them if I'm making this up. We're flying over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and we're told that pilot comes over and says, uh, someone was smoking in the bathroom and almost caught it on fire. <laughs> that, that person is being detained. I said, oh my goodness. And uh, But you can't use that bathroom. I think they want to dust it for fingerprints later. So I thought, Wouldn't that, it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, some guy smoking, and it turned out to be apparently a female is what the rumor mill said. Somebody's smoking on the airplane, which is against the rules. And then disposes of it. It could have caught the airplane on fire. Wouldn't that have been beautiful? Uh, the first time I taught in Jordan, at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, when I came back home, about halfway through, I got up, stood in the line for the restroom. When I got in there, opened the door, the little, like it's like a phone uh, booth kind of size thing, I, I immediately noticed the guy in front of me had been smoking because it was just full of smoke. And I thought, one, why didn't the alarm go off? And then I kind of, started doing my thing, and immediately a stewardess is pounding on the door saying, sorry, you cannot smoke here. It's against international law. You're going to jail for the rest of your life or whatever she said. And I thought, this is great. It's not. I don't even smoke, number one. 
I'm breathing this stuff, and I can just see it now. Duncan Banner. Tanglewood Bible Church pastor arrested for smoking in an international airplane flight. You know, but I didn't do it, man. I didn't do it. I had to explain myself. And then they, after 10 minutes, were trying to convince him I didn't do it. Well, what did the guy in front of you look like? I said, all I saw was the back of his head. You know, what kind of said? But that that was weird. So I guess it wasn't God's will for us to come home. No, you know, uh, through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom of God. So watch this. When Joseph came home, verse 26, they're smiling. They, they know they're not going to be sold into slavery until at least after the meal. <laughs> so it's all good. Uh, they brought into the house with them the present which was in their hand, and they bowed to the ground before him. Does that sound familiar? What started this story, man? The dreams? And they're all bowing down to him. They said, are you going to bow down to us, little boy? Basically what they said. Right, Sydney? And now it's happening, you know. Many years later, 22 years later, uh, you know, uh, a lot of waiting in God's program from our perspective, but Ricky's always on time, isn't he? Right. Now watch this. Then he, Joseph, this prime minister of Egypt, you know, asked them about their welfare and said, first thing, is your old father well of whom you spoke? I mean, he's over 100 years old, so at that point, you know, you can, at any point you can check out, you know, so is he still alive? Because he really wants to see his dad again. Uh, they bowed down, and said, is, he and is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. So he checks that off. Then they bowed down to him in homage again, right? As he lifted his eyes, and he saw Benjamin from a distance, but now he's up close, and it overwhelms him. You know, he's been praying this would happen. He's been hoping this has happened. He's afraid they probably treated him, Benjamin, like they treated uh, Joseph earlier, and maybe he doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe he's out of there. But they look, and he's there. And he's in one piece, and he looks fine. And he looks and sees his little brother, Benjamin. And it just chokes me up thinking about it. His mother's son, remember? There's only two that from his favorite, Jacob's favorite wife. Is this, and, he, he's, and he's doing this through translator, and he's playing dumb. And I'm really good at playing dumb myself. I'm, I'm really good at that. Is this your younger brother whom you spoke to me? Who I said, you better bring him back. We're not going to do any business. And and he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Kind of give him the Egyptian blessing there. And then he's so overcome with emotion and with joy, man. He is so thrilled this is actually happening. It's kind of like, you got Israel, you come back, and you go, we're really in Israel? I mean, it's almost got an unreal quality about it. But we got pictures of Dustin being baptized in the Jordan River. You know, so I know that happened, right? Um, and you know, you're going to be five seconds in heaven and say, was that all that horrible stuff I had to deal with, was that even real? You know, Paul says, I, I consider that the uh, the problems of this uh, lifetime aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that God has for us. So Joseph hurried out, out, out of the room because he was deeply stirred over his brother and he sought a place to weep for joy. He's so happy. And then he enters the chamber, uh, his, his private chamber, and whip, he's, he's crying for a while. It's not just 30 seconds. It took a while to get it out. Uh, do you know what you're seeing here? You're seeing the redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in Joseph as an Old Testament believer who had been for 22 years actively living out his faith, resting in and under the sovereignty of God. Not totalizing those boys, but not totally trusting them either. they got another big test on the way home we're going to talk about next week. And that's the way we ought to live our lives. It's just like flying an airplane on instruments. You know, uh, When you first learn how to fly, and I never was a pilot, but my dad was, 
you know, you only fly on clear days during the daylight where you can kind of see the ground and orient. You still use your, your, your instruments, but you've got to be able to see. But a, a real, real pilot can fly, and they actually put a hood on when you take this test. I saw my, the hoodie wore. All you can see is the instrument panel. That's called flying on instruments. And, you know, I believe in the sun even on cloudy days, don't you? I believe in the goodness of God even when it's hard to see it in some situations. All you see is darkness, you know? You've got to train yourself to do that. Uh, it's hard to build a battleship in the middle of a hurricane, which is why you've got to build it now. So you've got something, you know, to tie on with, right? If you have a third-grade level faith, when you have a fourth-grade level temptation or problem, and that's on a good day, you're going to have problems. You're going to have a little canoe that's not going to float very well. Uh, being small and petty, like many of us, like I can be, quick to take offense, slow to forgive, any perceived offense, and most of my perceived offenses weren't even intended, they're just in my mind, is a bad way for a Christian to live. If Joseph lived that way, this story would have ended last two weeks ago when he saw the brothers and had them executed and went on his life. And he would have had reason. He had cause. He has cause. But uh, it's a bad way to live. You know, it's just it's just a puny way. It's a spiritual limp at best. You might even not even be believe uh, regenerate if you if you live that way. Uh, conceals who we are in Christ. Conceal, conceals who Christ is within us. It causes misery for lots of people, collateral damage. But most of all, it causes misery for ourselves. Um, it seems to me the number one example of the Christian life should definitely be Joseph, right? Apostle Paul, Billy Graham. Your favorite big media preacher? That should be your number one example. Who's our number one example? I would think it'd probably be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame kind of thing. What does he do on the cross? Like first thing, Father, I think, I think crucifying the creator is probably a special category of sin that demands instant death. And he says, Father, I've Forgive them, okay? Let's just apply the atonement for that to, you know, all that on me too. Uh, you know, our leader does that, and some of us are way too picky and way too petty, and it's just a bad way to live, okay? But if that's what it was, um, in Joseph, the story would have been a very short story. Uh, here, is, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son kind of thing. Uh, God's been so gracious to us, we should ask for the grace to be more gracious to people than they deserve. On the other hand, we're not going to justify gross sin, you know, uh, horrible things that people do. You got to draw the lines. You got to keep your standards. But, uh, I think we, as a general rule, you ought to be way more gracious to people than they deserve as you perceive it. Okay, let's look at the last couple of verses here. Verse 31 through 34. As all 12 brothers, imagine this first time in 22 years, they've all been together. In one place, as all twelve brothers, the sons, the guys who are going to be the basis of the tribes of Israel, feast together at Joseph's mansion. Joseph gives the ten older brothers a second character test. Look at verse thirty-one. Then he washed his his face. He's been crying, boohooing for twenty minutes, and doesn't look so good. He's kind of puffy, you know. <laughs> so he washes his face. He comes out, controls himself. They think he's probably doing official government business for twenty minutes, and he says, "Show the meal. Get it out there." So that was a wimpy clap. Let's try that again. Serve the meal. And I, hey, I did it with my fingers. That was terrible. I didn't practice that enough, you know. We only had a 12-hour plane flight. I should have practiced that. So they served him by himself, status. You know, he's got a nameplate, you know, prime minister. And them, the brothers by themselves. And then the Egyptians 
the VIPs who are with him on this official government um, business lunch ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that's loathsome to the Egyptians. But here's the rest of the story. I love this. Verse 33. Now, they were seated before Joseph, the brothers, in order of their birth. And uh, I saw some commentator who did the math, you know, I guess it was that 12 factorial or something, whatever that number, it's a huge number, it's like 1,700,000. The odds of this just happening by random, just not going to happen, you know. But he he knows their birth order. He made sure they seated from the oldest, Reuben, all the way to Benjamin, in order. And the guys are looking at each other and say, isn't that, boy, it wasn't that lucky they seated us in seniority. This is the sovereignty of God worked out through his initiative here, but he made sure it happened, Joseph. So they're seated in order of their birth, man. And this is the Egyptian prime minister. He couldn't possibly know that, right? Of course, he did know it. And he took portions to them from his own table. They got the best food in the house. And I love this. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. Why is he doing that? Why is Joseph doing that? That's his favorite brother. Yeah, that's true. But he's looking for resentment. He's looking for second guessing. I mean, these guys ought to be so happy. And trust me, they are. They're delighted to be here. They're delighted they're not being sold into slavery or worse. They're happy with what they got. It's all grace. And the fact that, I mean, I don't resent people who have bigger churches than me or more gifts than I do. I just try to do the best I can with my little my little gift, you know. As best I can. You know, I'm trying to do the best Brad McCoy imitation I can do, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I know, Ron. I need to work on it. I'm trying to, you know. But he's testing them, and I'm telling you, there's not an envious eye in the house. These brothers are so glad to be in one piece, not in chains, eating ribeye. If that, he wants to give that the, the kid, you know, 25-year-old kid, five times as much. And These guys haven't had a real great meal in a while. They've been on short rations trying to make the food last. Yeah, you know, he's happy. He, you couldn't, he, they couldn't be happier. There's no resentment, and that's a good sign, you know. Now we're gonna get a big test next week. I guess you're gonna have to come back next week to find out what happens. Listen, feel free to read Genesis 44 anytime you want to. You don't have to wait until Sunday morning. But yeah, so watch this. So they feasted and drank freely with them, and none of the ten big brothers had any problem with Benjamin getting five times more food, you know. It's more than he could eat, kind of thing. Uh, I want you to note this as we close. God's priority in the 19th century B.C., God's priority in the 21st century A.D. is for the believer's character over our circumstances, although he providentially uses our circumstances, good, bad, and different, seemingly big, seemingly insignificant, seemingly spiritual, seemingly secular, as means of fashioning our character. That's the purpose of the deal. And you got to trust it. But as I say, Joel Olstein probably won't tell you this, and even some of the uh, kind of the cool preachers nowadays who are more motivational speakers sometimes than Bible expositors because that doesn't draw a crowd and you don't look cool if you teach the Bible anymore because, you know, it's kind of a dangerous book. Um, won't necessarily stress that, but that's a major premise of the Bible from uh, Genesis through Revelation. So God's overall sovereign purpose in all this, uh, and we're not done yet, is to rebuild this very dysfunctional family because these guys were so messed up in chapter 37 uh, God's got a lot of work to do in their lives to get them in a position where they can legitimately be the founding fathers of Old Testament Israel. And they've come a long way, as we'll see, especially next week. 
But in that matrix, we see Joseph displaying godly wisdom. Don't totalize them based on the worst thing they did, but don't totally trust them either. Trust but verify kind of thing. So he displays godly wisdom, amazing grace. He could have at any point had them executed or worse, tortured and then killed with cause, but he refuses to do that. And you also see creative problem solving, including a lot of pre-planning and consistent execution. Some people plan. I plan a lot of stuff out, and then I lose my to-do list. That's my problem, okay? But others have plans, and they forget them and stuff. And and constantly forgetting stuff you're supposed to do is ultimately a sin of omission. You don't want to do that, okay? Don't miss this. He doesn't blindly trust the ten brothers out of the goodness of his heart. But, you know, Jesus says, be as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as... It's hard to have it both. It's one thing to be one or the other, but Joseph's a good example of both. So he tests them, and uh, he could have dropped the hammer if they failed the test, but they're going to pass all the tests, including right now. They're just so happy to be there eating their steaks. They don't have any problem that that little brother has the five times more food than they've got. They've got plenty. God will give you all you need so you can be or become what he wants you to be. And he didn't want me to be Billy Graham because I didn't get any of those gifts at all. But I'm trying to do a good job of Brad McCoy, as I said. And and Rick's doing a good job of being Rick Schonemeyer and and Ed Barrett and uh, Julie Miller. We've all got a chance. I always think of your life as like a big piece of canvas. Or mine's probably a smaller piece of canvas. And he gives you you know this palette with colors. And he says, okay, paint me a picture. Uh, God gave Dustin a lot more colors and a lot more powerful colors than he gave me. But he didn't expect me to paint with his palette. He expects me to paint. I'm colorblind, so I got black, white, and yellow. Those are the colors I see. So I just paint a little black, white with some yellow in the background. That's all I can paint with. Uh, he gave James a lot more gifts than he gave me. But uh, it's kind of fun when you realize that's kind of the way it is. And it's, all this stuff is designed for a purpose. God's actually sovereign over everything. So Joseph's been hoping and praying that the ten will pass these tests, and so far they're off to a great start. He's overjoyed that Benjamin's intact and doing fine and Dad's still alive, even though they've been separated for over 20 years. And so I would say, and the reason he does that is because he's resting in the providence of God. He actually believes in the providence of God. And so I'm going to say, as I close, let's be constantly aware of and dependent on the providence of God, not in a way that causes us to be lazy, sloppy, forgetful, irresponsible. You can push that to an extreme. Uh, But let's be more gracious to people than they deserve. You know, the local church is uh, a laboratory where you get to learn how to show agape to all kinds of crazy people with all kinds of different hang-ups. I mean, everybody seems normal, Hal, until you get to know them a little bit, and then you realize they're not normal. They're almost as weird as you are, right? Um, Let's uh, be gracious to people without failing to uphold and enforce righteous standards amongst us. Let's live a lifestyle being more gracious to people than they deserve, a la life of Joseph. You need a concrete example, because God's sure been a lot more gracious to me than than I deserve. And if you need motivation... um, you know, you need a life verse. I'll, I'll repeat this one more time. We love because he, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the ontological trinity who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. We love because he first loved us. This is not talking about how great we are, but how great he is. And in this is love, not that we love God or that we show agape love to other people in our church or our family or our neighborhoods or our, our workplace but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would empower us 
to believe this portion of your word, see the implications in our life, and then to embrace it as transforming truth for us as individuals that we might consistently apply it to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.